Welcome to Pharma Launch Secrets, a podcast by Evermed. We host direct, actionable conversations with world-leading pharma launch experts that will help you launch your next product or indication successfully. Now, here's your host, Bozidar Jovicevic. Hello and welcome to a new episode on the Pharma Launch Secrets podcast. Today I have a pleasure of being joined by Rohit Sood. Rohit is a computer scientist by training and is currently executive vice president at Eversana. He has over 25 years of experience in the pharma and healthcare sectors, having previously worked as executive managing director, head of global commercial advisory group and head of consulting at Cineos Health, a company he was with for 15 years before Eversana. He also lectures at the Radger School of Business on biopharma product commercialization framework, something I'm definitely going to ask him questions about. And once he completed the marathon, the sub, a six-day, 251 kilometers or 156 miles ultra marathon through the Sahara Desert, something I also will ask him about. <laughs> Welcome, Rohit. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Bazi. All right. So today we'll be talking mostly about first time launchers, something that's it's, it's a trend over the past five to 10 years in the world of biotech and pharma. But before we go into that very high level, I'd like to ask my guest, given that we had COVID two years ago, change the world. What have you seen to be the biggest change you saw happen before and after COVID when it comes to pharma launches in general? A few key things, Bazi, and I may miss a few because there were some big, meaningful changes. I think the one thing, obviously, that everyone knows, because of quarantine, the engagement with stakeholders had to be changed. And so many companies we saw successfully and some unsuccessfully shifted through Zoom calls with physicians, with payers. And so that whole engagement had to change. Internally, that engagement, planning, strategy development also had to change because most of us were used to working in one office together and debating and coming up with solutions. Now you're used to, like, like you and I are talking, getting everyone ill together to kind of discuss how we kind of move forward and execute. Interesting thing that happened as a result of it, some of the new tools that came into play that allowed us to kind of collaborate a lot more online, like Miro. Teams was relatively new at that time. Today, we use Teams like it's been around for a long time. Zoom is another one. The mindset of how we collaborate had to shift. The second thing was, how do we engage with the tools that we have? So, you know, most engagement team members, whether they're MSLs, key account managers for payers, or account directors, if they're calling on institutions, or MSLs, if they are medical they were used to the face-to-face. They used systems like Viva and others to kind of manage their CRM. The use of digital technology to engage proactively with those stakeholders changed. Like it's a, you started, it actually kind of became more front and center as opposed to I got this detail aid in my CRM and let's talk through it. This, you'll hear these buzzwords called omnichannel. So the omnichannel use, while it's still an evolution and many companies are talking about how they do omnichannel, we have a very well-defined platform that we use in omnichannel today as well. Using that to engage stakeholders proactively based on certain events that are happening in the marketplace. So those are some things that we've seen that have kind of made a shift. And I'll tell you, I 
hired my entire team during COVID. Like, so our interviews were done on online. So we had to learn how to kind of ask different questions, observe body language. So the human factor of COVID was quite, made you think very differently. Today, we are now getting back in front of our stakeholders. So, but some of these practices remain and I'm glad they are there because it's making us more efficient today in how we execute. So some of these have remained even after COVID, although depending on who you ask, COVID may be there or not there. So, Yeah, fully agree. And it seems like some of these behaviors have shifted permanently as people experienced efficiency and were able to spend more time maybe with family or travel less. And I remember you mentioned that you hired a whole team during COVID. I remember we were, Zeramet, going through a fundraising round and we talked to multiple investors. And I remember our main investor, VC Fund from New York, led by three partners. So one of them is now on our board. And I remember he said that once we agree on everything, he said, by the way, this is like the first investment I made in 30 years as a professional investor's where I haven't met people in person. So especially, yeah. So you can imagine even in that world, like how is that even possible? That's a great point, Bazi. It's like, I think we've learned to adapt. And I hope some of these practices remain for a long time because there's a lot of good that also came out of COVID. Agree, agree. Now, I want to ask you a little bit more about your commercialization framework that you teach at Rodgers to understand really what has changed. So how you were teaching like a big buckets of commercialization and you mentioned some of those. Now that you go to teach, like what is really the big difference based on what you said? There's a COVID component to that. And then there's the market change in the US or Europe component to that. So we can kind of blend in both. So the idea of the framework, the intent, at least when we were, when we started, when my professor, Dr. Hassan, who leads the pharma program, them asked me, I was his student, hey, can you come and teach? This do this lecture to kind of get our students at Rutgers to understand how industry thinks, not just theory, but the practical application of what they are learning in, in their marketing course, whether it's positioning, segmentation, customer journey, those kinds of concepts that we talk about in many, at a very high level, I wanted them to kind of get a real world experience in that. So we created this framework that we had. It's now industry standard. It was designed by Monitor, but we've kind of taken it to a different level, which is how do you how do you logically develop a strategy and execute? So think about strategy, preparation, execution, and how do we kind of do that? So it's not ready, shoot, aim. It's a ready, aim, and shoot kind of mindset. What's changed in that is a few things. Payers were excluded. Nobody thought about payers maybe a decade ago. Today, they are front and center. The BMS CEO, I heard him at a symposium at Rutgers talk about, no matter what your innovation is, it has no value or meaning if the patient doesn't have access to it. So we have to keep that in our thinking and strategy development. The second thing that we talk about in the framework is we always talk about strategy and I'll use the word sexy things. But the plumbing is what differentiates you very often in how you execute. So your systems, your processes, your SOPs, is the data coming from, say, GPO into your dashboard? Is that working? Have you agreed on gross to net? Have you thought about it? So there's this whole infrastructure component that they don't teach you in business school. And even in pharma and industry, you learn by experience as you go through your career track. So we're trying to get the students to jumpstart and start thinking about this very fast. For example, I'll give you a really an interesting example. So forecasting. 
if you talk about forecasting, we think about forecasting as this massive exercise with market research and data, right? It's not always that. At some point, when you were doing your initial round to raise money, you started with, let's look at the market, total addressable market. I think we can take X amount. Then as you had a addressable, minimally, I think what's it called, minimal viable product, you started to add more things to your forecast because now we know how this compares to competitors. I have some data. Then you had a price point and your forecast changed. Then you had competitors come in and your forecast changed, right? So it's a evolution in how you think about forecasting, but we don't talk about it that way. And so I want the students at Rutgers to kind of think about the baseline of the framework, but also think about that this is not a one and done. Many of these things kind of evolve with time. And then a forecast, going back to that example, the forecast you develop from a revenue perspective needs a demand plan that goes to your supply chain distribution team. You need a patient volume component that goes to your patient services because how they organize the structure and the number of people capacity-wise is based on that forecast. But we are not pulling that through always, right? Now, big pharma is very sophisticated. They've done this many years. They think about it. Emerging pharma don't always think about these things. Mm -hmm. And which brings me to actually the the topics we're going to go a little bit deeper on today. It is a mind-boggling and overwhelming task. It's like first-time first first pharma launches. A lot is at stake. A lot of these companies, they may have one only one asset or maybe have two, three, four assets in the pipeline, but this is the first asset they're launching. And they're literally, as a large pharma company, would survive a failed launch. But first-time launchers, it's literally everything at stake. The shareholders' money the patients getting access to medicine, careers, jobs, and things like that. So it's much high pressure. And there has been this this, this kind of trend of, of more companies launching on their own. So due to different reasons. First of all, if you can share a little bit, why are more companies launching on their own? And then how is that first time launching different than launching like being a big pharma? I think uh, what we've seen, and I think you may be referencing the McKinsey article that was actually a very good article around that the number of first-time launchers has increased threefold in the last two years. So I think if you look at the 2016 to 2018 timeline, and yet even with that, I think 66 or somewhere in that range, 66 to 77% of those first-time launchers missing their forecast, right? 63 to 60 to 70%. That's a really high number. For many different reasons. You know forecasts. You're a CEO of a firm. If I come to you with a forecast, most of the time you'll say add 10%. The forecast's wrong already, right? So there's some very small things that kind of get your forecast off. I think big pharma, mid-sized pharma, biotech companies have been struggling with innovation because they're growing. There's so many different areas of focus for them where we are seeing entrepreneurs either taking risk or scientists from academia taking an idea and starting to establish a company. And so you're seeing that that emergence of these entrepreneurs that are starting their own first-time developer or platform-based technology to develop an asset. And so they are be- becoming the R&D engine for mid-size and pharma companies. The second thing, which obviously we are in a different market environment today, about six to nine months ago, the capital markets allowed us, enabled us to raise capital fairly easily. Interest rates were low. People wanted to invest. There was lower risk. Today, the risk is higher 
cost of capital has increased. So we might see a little decline if we haven't already in first-time launches trying to like figure out how to manage cash, how to invest. So that's what I think is driving first-time launches. It's the entrepreneurial spirit, access to capital, and also just the ability to kind of execute on R&D. And how about the commercialization part? So is it also the availability of end-to-end commercialization services, if you will, progress? So now you're, as a CEO, you're more like an R&D type thinking how to bring the best products to the market. And they say, well, I have this option and that option, and I actually do not need to have all these resources that I used to have. I think that's a great question. So optionality is always at play, right? A CEO is thinking about how do I maximize shareholder value or equity enterprise value, whichever way you want to define that. They're always thinking that way, or they should be thinking that way. What I have noticed is the the simple way to answer is two words. It depends. Start with your vision, aspiration. Like, what do you want to do at the end? Do you want to be a standalone company or you want to invest, take money and move to the next entrepreneurial venture. And they drive in how you invest, in how you think about product development, how you think about building your organization. There are many, many flavors of it. We are seeing with our model at Eversana, the idea of kind of working with these emerging companies where they own strategy, we become the execution arm. They also, we also set up structures that allow them to manage their capital better and also retain ownership of the asset. So market authorization. So it's becoming very lucrative for them to like, or, or much, much more of a viable model for them to start thinking about how do we not give up control to another li- licensor, which I, whoever the licensor is, and while executing and commercializing. Where we are seeing is it's a little bit of, so if you think about that model, Bazi, it's, it's still new, right? In the 70s, we had CROs that was, and now CROs are, pretty much everywhere, right? You name the CRO, any R&D company, even the startups are using a CRO to execute. Then there was a contract manufacturing organization in maybe the early 80s and late 80s, we saw like contract sales organizations. If you look at that timeline, right? So commercial started to outsource, but only sales reps, only field reps. In I think 2014 or early 15, Mike Griffith, who currently leads our, one of our competitors, Amplity, when he was at Inventive, coined this phrase, complete commercial contract commercial organization. We are still somewhere in like the early phases of this. When we presented this model to even CEOs or the C-suite of Big Pharma, they know this is the future, but there are some organizational challenges to kind of work through. For example, what do they do with the commercial teams, right? There's, you think about Novartis, Roche, BMS, any of these very successful and large biotech pharma companies, they have people, there's a human capital impact here. And then there is a, the model is still being proven. And we have case studies where we've learned a lot that are working really well. I'm sure if you talk to anyone, there are mistakes, like any launch, any commercialization effort, you make a mistake, learn and execute. So still new, and we're trying to shift the marketplace to get them to think about, especially for first-time launchers, to start working with companies like ours to do that. I think by the time you and I retire, this might become a standard model. Standard model. Well, yeah, everything that I thought takes uh, two years, takes five years in healthcare and pharma. But now COVID accelerated some of the things that I thought would be five years to two years. <laughs> so I think uh, for, from a commercialization model, we are looking at at least a decade or if not more. 
because our our industry moves very slowly. It's like once a big competitor, a big big uh, client, like a let's pick up any big pharma or biotech company. Once they decide to move in a direction, people start following. People are uh, big pharma, mid-sized pharma, biotech are now observing how this model evolves. And we are doing work with mid-sized pharma in, in becoming, taking an asset and executing for them with them. We've created these governance structures where they, there's complete transparency on how we are executing, what's not working, how do we fix. So it's almost like we bolted into their organization and there's a in, aligned incentive between us and them to make sure that we are looking out for both our interests, more importantly, making the drug successful. And that's the key. Mm -hmm. Now that we, let's say that we have in front of us a first-time launcher. <laughs> they have the launch coming in 24 months. They're listening to this episode. Maybe I'll ask you this question a little bit differently. Instead of asking you, what are the key success factors things that need to, they need to think about? Maybe we do it in an inverted way. I like this, been under influence of Charlie Munger recently. So he's like, just why don't you just invert the question? Because how do you fail with first-time product launches so that you actually get faster to clarity and focus on three to five things that you need to be done? So the question is, what are the top ways to securely fail with the first-time launches? I am a big fan of Charlie Munger, and I love that he and... Warren Buffett just speak their mind. It's there's no sugarcoating. So I love that mindset. There are a few things. Again, I will start with it depends. If the board and the CEO's aspiration is to sell the asset, let's take that aside. That's a different thing. Let's focus on CEO and the board saying we will commercialize. The first thing is education. We are struggling with this with many, many companies. It's kind of what we talk to our team about. Let's kind of get raise the board and the CEO's awareness as to what it takes to commercialize. Because remember, most of them are either financial folks or came from big pharma, then they may know, or in most cases, they are scientists and are very passionate about developing this asset, which is what we need. But that mindset shift from scientists to commercial is needed. So part of the challenge is they've got to understand what will it take to commercialize an asset. So the, the, way, the way to fail is to have a leadership that is that not understands. experienced not that experience, not experience in commercialization and is not interested to learn more about that. I think it's more the second part, Bazi, because I always feel like we are not always experts in everything. So it's not about having an R&D leader. I, I, I think there are many R&D leaders that have done very well and have been very successful. It's more about are they willing to learn and, not, and the biases, we all have biases, right? Based on our experience and lessons we've learned. How do we kind of get them to think about this to say, all right, I really don't know this. Tell me what should I be thinking? Yeah, right? clear. So I would say that's the number one thing we need to start thinking about. The second thing that we should start, we, where they fail is lack of investments. They start thinking about, because there's a cash component, right? These are startup companies with limited capital, so they have to optimize the cash flow to kind of be viable by the time they get to market. So there's always a little bit of that tension around where do we spend? And in my old firm, we did this market research at a biotech showcase at JP Morgan. The interesting thing we found is, and I think the question was, are we spend our organization startup or spending enough on commercialization? The interesting take there was that the financial investors thought we are not. The leadership, C-suite leadership, thought we are spending more than we need to. 
I thought it was going to be a completely different takeaway, right? So where's the disconnect? So that's the second. Yeah, and I remember there was in the article, maybe that was McKinsey article or first word article, it was given an example, Biohaven has invested massively in their launch. Okay, they've been acquired by Pfizer. And there was an example of, I think, Esperion and a few other companies where maybe that's not the only reason, but it wasn't invested enough, especially since the product is for, for high cholesterol, which is a very broad, broad market, and that it didn't go well. Although they, that may not be the same reason. I know they're expecting outcome data and things like that. But we use two words, Bazi, very frequently, smart and meaningful. You shouldn't waste money. And it is their money when we work with them. But where, what will have the impact, meaningful impact by spending? And then going back to the awareness piece, and this you see this cycle going, playing through, there's always this feeling if we do this once, like in clinical, you do it one and there's a path and you follow, right? And there's an outcome. In commercial, it's like, it's squishy and very, very, you have to be very like flexible. It's art and science and I think more art at times, right? So there's frameworks that can, throw frameworks at you. I was a consultant for 15 and a half years. And I can also give you examples of the best intentions get thrown out because something happened in the marketplace. Or the best strategies get thrown out because something happened. So it's like that whole Marine Corps army, right? Like you've got this plan, you jump into the war zone and everything changes. Yeah, or Mike Tyson Mike Tyson eloquently said, everyone has a plan until they get a punch in the face. Punch in the face. I think that's, we have to have that mindset in commercialization that things will fail, mistakes will be made. You got to be used to it. You got to very quickly discuss what the solution is, change, and move forward. Got it. So the first one would be basically to have a leadership who is not open to learning about commercialization. And then the second one is underinvest. That's a sure way to fail. Is there anything else? There's one other thing that I would say is They've got to have the long view. You can't manage it. I understand financial systems, you got to manage it quarter to quarter or sometimes month to month, but you got to have a long view with fiduciary responsibility, your stakeholders, shareholders. So it's not like it's a free blank check to execute, but there has to be a longer term view and execution. And then the last thing I would say where these organizations fail because there's like a dime a dozen consulting firm agencies that will tell you they do positioning, et cetera. They underinvest in infrastructure or, so it's going back to investment, but I want to call out infrastructure separately, or they do not understand the infrastructure requirements, going back to the willingness to learn. But this is a completely different thing rather than strategy that hurts you in the end. Let's dive deep into a little bit of that when you say, what, when you say infrastructure, what do you mean by that? Systems, processes, SOPs, data, integration of these systems and processes and data. Even with Eversana, where we pretty much have all the different capabilities from market research, data, insights, to agency, to market access, medical, patient services hub, specialty pharmacy, distribution channel. We have all that, revenue management. I mean, you can look it up. There's a, quite a few services, and I probably missed a few. I'll hear about that later. But the challenge is to make it all work together requires thinking, time, commitment. Even though we have all these things, in every program, there are nuances that require us to think differently and say, oh, in this case, it's really retail pharmacy and I'm getting maybe a data from Thrifty White on a performance or some other pharmacy, retail pharmacy. How do we take that and include into our dashboard so I know exactly how we are performing? 
or if McKesson and other distributors are who are very big in oncology, and we have we are playing a lot in oncology, they are distributing for us. How do we make sure we get the data sets from them to, to know how we are performing, what the course correction is, and then communicating it down to our field team, our internal team. So there's all these governance structures outside, on top of the systems and processes we need to build. And if a startup has a commercial-oriented person, so I have some really good examples. Cara Therapeutics is one. I worked with them. I know their leadership and previous leadership really well, they invested in a commercial lead very early on to just start thinking about these things, who to partner with, how to think about stakeholders, how to engage them. Is our data and data points and results actually meaningful enough to kind of make an impact in the marketplace? Are we engaging with payers so payers don't feel left out that you didn't engage with the payers early on, right? So these are things that having a commercial person on board early does help. Very often now, in, in the recent months, we've started to work with early stage companies where we are advising them on some of these things, just to make sure whatever they decide, whichever path they take, we obviously want them to work with us, that they're thinking about the right things so that the product or the asset they're developing becomes a commercially viable brand and a successful brand. Okay. And then everything that we discussed, there is, of course, a component of, of people, right? So when you're thinking of first-time launchers, I would assume that you've seen different setups. Someone is thinking, oh, let's bring someone who's done it 15 times or five times in big pharma, or let's bring someone from another industry, or let's bring someone who is who brings some fresh thinking. What do you think is, if you think of the leadership of the launch team, so not the CEO, but the commercial leadership, what do you think is the right skill set, the right background that you see worked well so far? So if you're a first-time launcher, that's a great actually question. We think about it. I think about that as I've been building our team and my leadership team is thinks the same way as well. Culture, culture, culture. What kind of culture do you want to set? And that becomes really important because, as I said, it's squishy and problematic and th- you have to be flexible when you're doing commercial. Things change, things get broken. And if your mindset is not such that you're able to be agile, I don't like that word, but everyone throws that word around. It's the only way I can define it or explain this. If you're not able to kind of shift really quickly or bring people together very quickly, that's a challenge. In startup, first-time launchers, you don't have an army of folks doing marketing. You, at times, may be the only person, as I mentioned with Kara, there was one person working with different partners. We were one of the partners early days, my previous firm. But at some point, they start building their own organization or work with Eversana as an organization to execute for them. That's one. Cultural fit is very critical. Second thing I think is launch is not, if you're in a launch timeline, that's not where you learn. You have to have done it before. So most of the folks you'll hire have done this before or have advised companies who've done it before. They have their battle scars. And they most of the time know the mistakes to avoid. And then even then they are mistakes, right? Because we are human, that things will happen. So having someone who's done it before is very critical. The third thing is just maturity and being open-minded. So going back to culture, So culture, it's kind of more like a mindset of this person we need to think about. How do they engage with you? Because everything's great until when things go wrong. Do you start pointing fingers? Or do you say, Bozzy, let's sit down and talk about this. I'm struggling with this. Can you help? Because you're the expert. Let's figure this thing out. And that's what my team, our C-suite with Jim Lang, Greg, we kind of encourage our team to like saying, stop pointing fingers, fix the problem, learn from it, and move forward. 
And I'll tell you, it's a pleasure working with not only our partners, but our internal teams, because that mindset allows us to execute the best we can. And there's ownership in there. There's ownership. Like I talked earlier a little bit about incentives. My team's incentivized to make the brand successful, not drive our company's revenues. Although we do pay attention to that because it is a business. But the first fiduciary responsibility is to the partnership. How do we execute so the brand is successful? That's the mindset. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And especially, you know, that's, I think, the advantage also first pharma companies. I, I'm making an assumption. I worked at Novartis and Santa Fe most of my career, but it, you can actually do what Jeff Bezos did is have more ownership, incentivize people more with stock options. Because then, and I recently read a book from Nassim Taleb, Skin in the Game, which is phenomenal. It just made me think how much more wonderful it is when uh, incentives are aligned at every level. When people actually have a skin in the game, so it not, not just yeah. it affects their career, but it affects their financial performance. And in case of uh, first-time launches, it can be massively, massively high reward, disproportionately, than working in a big pharma. So if I will be the CEO of first-time uh, pharma launcher, uh, or launchers, I will try to find a way to do that. because uh, You still have people... to find the right people, though, right? That's At the end of the day, that's where it starts. Yeah, of course. That's number one. And are there any specific launches that you're keeping an eye on in the next uh, 2022, 2023, or indication launches? There are a few, but I can't share because we are in conversation with them that we are very excited about. I am seeing a big shift in the cell and gene therapy area. So we are paying attention to that. We just heard about Bluebird Bio. They are a client of ours. We do some work for them. And uh, we are very excited for them because they've had a rough few years or a rough year. But that's the, that's the whole thing. Long-term, long-term vision, long-term plan, thinking through to kind of bring the asset to market. Because you're thinking about patients at the end of the day, right? These are really impactful drugs and treatments. Cell and gene therapy is a big one that we're looking at. CNS, neuroscience as a therapeutic area. We are paying attention to oncology is big. I think the, what, 70% of all or some ridiculous number of assets coming to market are in oncology. And there's like, I think, what, 60 IO or some very high number of immunotherapies. I'm trying to figure out who's going to pay for it because you keep stacking on new things and it becomes very expensive. But those are the big areas. I think neuroscience is the holy grail from my point of view. I think it's exciting that you're seeing Alzheimer's, even though some hiccups in the market with some recent launches, but I think Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, epilepsy, we've had some really good innovation in that area with GW Pharma and others. I see also in neuroscience, psychedelics as a whole new area of treatment. We have companies that are investing in psychedelics. So new technologies, new MOAs, and also a slightly shift from oncology to neuroscience. I think someone from Genentech or Rose said, neuroscience is a new oncology. There was some very good article that I remember reading that quote. So uh, I think there's truth in that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, there are some new markets emerging like uh, obesity as well. I read an article on Fierce Pharma that's going to be like a high hypertension market in the 90s. This has been a great conversation. And uh, what I love to do towards the end of the episode is ask some more personal questions. So we do kind of like rapid fire, one sentence question, one sentence answer. So people learn more about you. First question I have for you is, what is your favorite industry buzzword of the year 2022? You may have mentioned it earlier in the conversation. Favorite because I don't like it, but it's really important is agility. <laughs> agility, got it. You mentioned omni-channel, you, you mentioned omni-channel, you mentioned agility. I was wondering which one you chose. That would be Scott. <laughs> Scott's buzzword probably is omni-channel. For me, it's agility. I think everyone says they're agile. I don't think we really understand what it takes to be agile. So that requires 
So I, while I believe in it and we try to, we aspire to be agile, the agility way of being agile is hard. It's really hard. Especially in a large organization. I've seen it now in both from like Evermed and I see it both from large companies. It's, it's a very different environment. What's the best book you've read in the last 12 months that you would recommend or buy as a gift for someone? There's a few. So Adam Grant, Think Again. I love that book. Great book. Right? Love it. I posted it on my LinkedIn, by the way, that I read yeah. it. And, and I'm, I read this once. I'm going through again. CEO Excellence. It's written by McKinsey. There are three partners there. It makes you think about the challenges and obligations of being a CEO and what that is. And it's, it's just giving you a, line, a lens to think about how, one, if you aspire to be a CEO, what does that look like or to think about? And if you are a CEO, things that you should think about, right? And, and most good CEOs are probably doing a lot of these things. I love how they've kind of, as McKinsey and many consulting firms do, have kind of broken it down to six core areas based on the research with, I think, two or 300 global CEOs. And I love the case studies, like examples, which is kind of gives you ideas. So I love that book. Those are the two that I would say are on my top list. Wonderful. And then what's your go-to song when you need some inspiration or you feel stressed? Oh, I don't know. That's, I have a eclectic taste, as I say. It goes from Pink to Pink Floyd, right? So it's so anything in the middle, depending on my mood, I will listen to it. And I do listen to Pandora during the day to kind of just get me going when I'm a little down. But a big fan of Billie Eilish of late and uh, Lizzo. All right. This next question, be careful, because <laughs> who in the world of pharma would you most like to take out for lunch? I was just kidding about be careful, would, but uh, no, no, sometimes no, no, people are, no. oh. I would love to take Vas from Novartis. He and I have exchanged emails once, like for, for when he got promoted. I want to learn from him because he's changing the culture of Novartis, right? And his, his word about reimagine medicine or treatment or leadership, that whole word reimagine. I would love to learn about like what have been the biggest challenges? How is he managing the different stakeholders? based on the performance they've had and where they're going. I would love to have that conversation because it's not easy. It's not easy. For sure. And what's the one sentence advice you would give to anyone starting out in pharma marketing? Learn. That's a word. Keep learning. Keep learning. The learning never stops. You have to keep taking classes. You've got to keep listening to people. I'm taking a course even today on something that I thought I understood, but it's like, oh, these are the buzzwords that I never thought of. And then also understanding what the difference is between one word and another word. And then there's a legal component to it. And then things like that, that we just tend to talk about because we heard from someone, but you got to keep learning. At some point you will use it. Lifelong learning. Yeah. Where can people find you online? LinkedIn. I used to be very active on Facebook. I'm trying not to be. It's hard. <laughs> I love Facebook. But LinkedIn, I'm, I'm, I'm active in LinkedIn. I do enjoy mentoring people. I have some folks that I'm mentoring in other organizations, some at Rutgers as well. It's like uh, my thinking is you got to keep helping and giving back. Thank you. And on that note, uh, going to conclude this episode. Thank you so much, Rohit. Uh, I think we definitely left some food for thought for first-time launches and hopefully give a useful critical success factors to inversion and other fun questions we went through. Thank you. Thank you, Baji, for having me. This was a lot of fun. This podcast was brought to you by Evermed, 
Evermed offers pharma companies the fastest path to having their own Netflix-like on-demand video engagement hubs for doctors or patients. Make sure to search for Pharma Launch Secrets in Apple Podcasts or Spotify and click on the follow icon so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Evermed, thanks for listening.